Hello, welcome back. I'm Jen Fletcher and this is the Messy Truth Conversations on Photography. It's been a minute since we have been here sharing this space together and I'm so excited to be back with you. To kick off season five, I've got an incredibly special guest, someone who for many years I've looked up to as a beacon of possibility for what the photo industry is and could be. Elisa Med, who you probably know is the editor of Phone magazine, amongst many, many contributions she makes within our industry. Foam is a portable exhibition platform that seeks to examine how we understand our world through images in new and complex ways. What I admire so much about Elisa is that she's not afraid to start difficult conversations and she really opens the door for us to see anew. I'm skeptical of a context or a situation in which there's no degree of conflict whatsoever because it's impossible. It's a hundred heads, a hundred hats. If there's too much agreement over something, there, there must be something we're overlooking. But it goes beyond the idea of agreement and disagreement. It's more of looking at what we do in a critical way, in a, a bit more of a multi-layered way, in a deeper way. In addition to Elisa taking us behind the scenes on how an issue of foam comes together, we talk about systems, value, visual literacy, new talent, nurture, the importance of friction and criticism. I really hope you enjoy the show. It's a really special one to record. So here's my conversation with Elisa Med. I wondered if you could perhaps like orient people in your practice especially for people who might just think that you're the editor of foam when actually you know there's a lot there's an ecosystem happening around your energetic force in some ways well um yes I am the editor of foam and I've been the editor of foam for the past 10 years and that is my main occupation that that that's what takes the vast majority of my time um next to that i mentor i teach um for art academies or pretty much wherever i'm invited at because it's something i deeply deeply love uh, to be connected with 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 people experimenting with their practice at early stage of their practice when when there's still the freedom and the doubts to um make mistakes without uh, all the all the all the pressure and the Sober structure that we've built ourselves in our industry. And also, I love it because it helps me um, taking fresh air from our industry, which is a complicated... It's an industry, eh? it became an industry mm-hmm. per se. So with all, all the conflicts and the, and the, and the moral um, issues that it entails. I also write and um, I write for photographers and I also write uh, for the magazine. Uh, my, my texts are also included in Phone Magazine and for other outlets when people ask me for opinions, which is something I, it looks like I'm very <laughs> equipped, equipped with. Um, I do have many opinions. <laughs> so whenever I do a, a mask, I, I like to share them. I think that the the other thing that I do, which overarches all of that I said, I like to look. I I am a uh, compulsive uh, buyer of photo books and books in general, and seeing exhibitions and just looking at things. I whatever is sent to me, I have this um, almost compulsive need for images constantly. 
I I really look at the world through the images uh, that people create to depict it. it. It helps me understand how we work, how we make sense of things around us. So that yeah, that's what I do. I also hate openings. <laughs> that's that's a, a specific thing. You've never seen me at openings. I love that, and I also just want to know, which we could come back to later. What else is on your hate list? I love people's <laughs> hate lists. We're just like we're too, I feel like sometimes it's too much all in the positive, and I'm like, oh, I'm really fascinated to see what someone hates. Well, like what are the things that wind them up? Oh God. Um... Yeah, maybe we come. I don't have a list on top of my head right Let's now. Come back I can to tell it. you, I hate the word iconic. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> there was a ban at a certain point in the Full Magazine editorial office. There was an official ban. Amazing. On, on, on that <laughs> word. Um, yeah, but we can come back to that later. I'll think about it. You said something really interesting then. You said, you know, you almost have this compulsive desire to engage with images. And I'm curious, did that, is that born from something? You know, did, did photography come to your life at a particular point? Did it open something up for you when you were, were you were younger or a student? Like, what, what do you think the root of that is? Um, well, my father was a photographer. So there right. was always photography around in our house. But I think that my very first connection with images was were comics. Um, when I say I'm compulsive about images, it's not just photography. Photography is a big part of it. Mm -hmm. I have a special relation to photography that probably indeed comes from my dad. Um, but then, it, of course, it became something else over the years. But um, I think I tend to be naturally a, a visual person. And then I always knew that I would work or live with images. It was something very, very clear since a young age there was no doubt for me for example that I was going to study history of art that was a fact and uh, during my studies which were, were very classical studies um, I realized I, I discovered the existence of iconology and that thing opened the gates for me the free association between images and using images to understand, using images to tell stories, using codes within images to communicate something, whether that was classical painting or frescoes or photography or nowadays memes, everything. So mm -hmm. I think that that is specifically my, my yeah, my, almost my obsession. And uh, I, I do trace it back to comics, frankly. I love that. It's so funny that how comics can just open up so much we, we associate it it's such a like it's one of those um one of those visual mediums that sort of hasn't had the props it deserves in sort of mainstream culture but it's so influential and so formative for so many people and such a lifeline I think even for people we, we kind of tend to be quite ageist when we think of comics but actually I think they're such a lifeline for people at different stages in their lives Totally. I still buy tons of comics, graphic novels, illustration. It's, it's fantastic. It's vital um, for me. I'm one, I'm one of those nerds. I love it. I love <laughs> it. Um, 
I've heard you talk about your work at phone before and you talk primarily about this mission to inform and gather and engage the widest possible audience. And it made me think about this idea of being a cultural worker in the arts. And I'm curious if you think about yourself as a kind of cultural worker, kind of first and foremost, about engagement with audience as a primary kind of objective. Yes, I think so. I think so. I like to think of of for magazine as this we always call it portable exhibition platform hmm? mm. or something that can travel that triggers questions. That is that is the ultimate reason uh, for me and that's where I see myself very much uh involved with and um I think of it also as a very public role in the sense of of public service it is part of a larger conversation about visual literacy which i feel it's essential and it's missing in very large parts um, of our ecosystem within photoland but in the large part also of, of visual culture um, education and 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 mass consumption so i do i do like to think of about what I do as as a service in that sense. I think I'm able to offer something, uh, to offer some, some space for conversations. And I do like to think that what I do together with the team is to, to trigger questions that maybe someone didn't think about before. That's, that's the most important thing. It's interesting that you talk about visual literacy because I have a lot of conversations on the podcast about this. And... And sometimes, you know, I feel like we sort of people tend to sit in two camps, one who feel that, you know, visual literacy has never been stronger because of the visual culture that we live in and others that feel like it's a math, a massive growth area that needs a lot of attention because we're consuming so much, but perhaps mindlessly without, you know, truly engaging with it. Where do you think we're at? I I appreciate that's a big question but where do you feel like we're at and, and kind of what action do you feel like we need to take as a as a public as a community to kind of move positively forward on that I think that there's so much work to be done we're not talking about it enough and we're not working on it enough and the fact that there are so many images we're exposed to so much visually there there was there was a one of our collaborators with the magazine, Toby, that will always say this sentence. You know, whenever people say, oh, my God, we're uh, uh, so much into a world of images, images are coming at us. It will be like, yeah, I need to move them away from my sight because they are coming at me as if <laughs> this is really, you know, as, as, as a windy day with all the images coming at you. It's not about the quantity. It's about how we experience them. Mm. And visual culture is essentially communication. And there's many different types of communication. It could be a silent communication. It could be a sensorial communication. It could be a conceptual communication. But it's still communication. And you do need to speak a bit of the same language to understand a certain level of communication. And also when it comes to production, there's techniques, there's narrative techniques, there's modes, there's histories, there's... Um, traditions, there's codes embedded in the single image, in the sequence of images, in the creation of an image. 
And all of that helps and informs the way we transfer meaning and indexical value, values or anything else that we can pass on through images. So I do feel that, that the more images we consume, the more we need to talk about it in order to be able to be conscious with what we're doing and be conscious or at least have a bit more effective tools to understand what is it that we're looking at. Um, so, yeah, I think I'm from, from that side of the conversation that says, no, 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 we, we, we didn't even start properly yet. There's so much to do. I imagine this is something that comes up in conversation with you guys when you're in the sort of development process of the magazine. I wondered if you could kind of let us into that world, because I think sometimes the editorial process can be quite a mystery to photographers and creatives generally and kind of what makes the cut and why it makes the cut and all of those questions. But but beyond that, which I think is perhaps a bit of a reductive sort of avenue to go down, I, I'm just curious kind of obviously foam is primarily thematic, although it is very, it's very broad as well, each issue. There's a lot to kind of get your teeth into. I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about how you and the team work and how you kind of wrestle and grapple with all of the things that you're all bringing to the table and decide which avenue to pursue. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a very chaotic system. Right. Uh, <laughs> and it's, I guess it's the, it's the beauty of the creation uh, or of the creative moment. Huh? But it's a very chaotic system. And um, I have to say that most of the times um, the themes for for magazine stem from images. For me especially, the images come first, always. There's something that I see that I feel, ah, I need to talk about that. There's something in there. But then immediately after, it becomes words. And so, for example, when we decide to develop a theme, and we are always working on multiple themes, and then eventually one of them will take off. There's always this very important moment in the editorial office uh, that now includes uh, Kathy Undermart and Enri Badaro. It's the three of us uh, developing everything. Uh, there's these moments in which we create a mind map of words related to that topic, what it is that we're talking about, what it is that we want to talk about. And that goes along with image sequencing um, and mind map or a mood board in which you start putting visuals and say, okay, well, you know, this specific sub-theme or this specific aspect can be developed or um, talked about with the portfolio. There's this very interesting body of work that really says something about this. Or maybe for this other word or sub-themes, there's not that much around or what it is. is not exactly what we're looking for. So why don't we create a long-form essay about that? Why don't we ask someone to talk about multiple approaches um, to these specific subthemes. And this is how organically, chaotically, but <laughs> <laughs> inevitably, um, a magazine takes shape. And uh, the, the structure of the magazine is quite simple. So we can be, we start from scratch every time. Probably when I say it's simple, it's actually not true. It's not really simple because it's a it's a bit of a math calculation between the types of paper that we use and the changes in paper and what actually goes with along those papers. Um, 
but then with that we build up the whole content and we get down to a picture that makes sense to to bring on all the questions that we think are important to have in that moment do you have a lot of friction in your collaboration are there moments of friction yeah that are quite generative i think the right quantity i will be very scared if we wouldn't have moments of friction yeah that will be a very very bad <laughs> sign <laughs> yes um because we are different and we have different points of departure and we are at different points so it's very important that um that comes out i am i i believe very much in conflict from that point of view because it's a creative force when it's healthy um it really makes you able to to bring up something that none of you thought about before and it comes out from that friction so i think we have a good quantity of it and a healthy quantity of it when i will do the magazine alone or i did it mostly alone for many years Mm. um it wasn't as satisfying because I didn't have that friction. I had confrontations, yes, but not really a thorough, deep conversations about things. So I think that that's a very important aspect. It's funny, actually, you've just made me think that the topics that we're going to go on to talk about, friction and tension is actually what's vital to all of them, which may actually end up kind of emerging as the as the theme for this because it's almost what what is missing when we fall into those moments of isolation which sometimes can be really generative but actually long term I think you need that friction whether you're an artist whether you're a curator or writer you need that friction to keep growing right it's the generative sort of catalyst to to push yourself out of your comfort zone to push yourself out of a one you know your bubble in terms of your perspective yeah, it's what makes you pop the bubble. Yes. And and we see it, you know, in all other domains, like social media, the goddamn algorithm, it works. The problem is not that it doesn't work. The problem is that it works too well. Yes. And you enter in this bubble in which what you think or what you perceive is confirmed constantly. Yeah. And that is bad. Whatever it is that you think, that is always bad because it becomes monoculture and that is not fun and not useful as well. So I think that friction, confrontation, um, I think they are very healthy part of any relationship in life and, uh, and in doing what we do. I... I'm not scared of them in the sense that I do not feel unsafe in them. And I always try to beware or have this conversation if someone feels unsafe during a confrontation or a moment of friction, because that is not about yourself. That is about how you create things. So, you know, there's, there's a, these are aspects in our life that I think we also in our age and time tend to suppress Mm -hmm. whereas we should embrace in a healthy way of course yeah in a you know reasonable quantity but for me it's important yeah I, I couldn't agree more and I think that one of the things 
I've spent a long time mentoring people and quite intensely over the last five years. And one of the things that comes up time and time again, and my partner laughs at this because she says I sound like a broken record when she can overhear the conversations, (laughs) but people are just, you know, they say they feel unfixed in their in their practice and they're unsure what to do and I'm like that's exactly where you should be that means it's working like you need I've constantly find myself saying you need to cultivate the confidence to sit in that discomfort to sit in that sort of state of mind because that's where you're going to learn the most that's where you're going to grow the most and it sounds it's the most annoying thing to hear and I sometimes can tell like by their breath uh, how frustrating it is to hear but it's the thing that I wish somebody would have told me when I was 20 I really yeah. do I think it would have just saved me so much time yeah it's just so important yeah I'm gonna sort of digress a little bit because one of the things that I just wanted to mention about foam which I think makes it so special and I don't think you probably can't see but I have shelves and shelves of it let me see <laughs> over here shelves oh, and shelves well, thank you And I mentioned that because I think it's very rare to make a magazine that you can look back on an issue seven years ago, four years ago, 10 years ago, and it still holds such relevance. And I don't know how you do it, Elisa. I don't know how you do it (laughs) because there's not many, not many things, places, exhibitions that do that. You've got this real, you and the team have got this real art of balancing sort of being reactive and responsive to our current moment but keeping somehow the magazine just feels timeless honestly I refer back to it all the time and I am continually astounded at the new things that it triggers or the things that I feel like I didn't even read the first time in that way because I'm coming to it as a different person at a different moment in time and yeah I'm just curious if that's a conscious thing that you're thinking about in the production of the magazine I, I feel I'm blushing and giggling like like <laughs> a kid because that's that's you know what I all I think what hearing you talking is so it works. <laughs> that's exactly what what we want to do. That that's the idea. And and that's because the only constant is change. You, you can never say something final about anything really. And with for magazine, and I have to say that this is the mission the magazine was born with. I arrived in something that was already set up that way. And that's why I also was so happy to be in there. The idea, it was since the very beginning to make a, a magazine, a portable exhibition platform, whatever you call it, that could grow over time that could say something relevant about the moment it was born, but that had the space and the chance and the possibility to change, to evolve, to say something about it or about something else within 10 years' time. And this is why the timeless part of the magazine has always been so important, and that's why we... And there's no issue of the magazine too much rooted into the now I did push that thing a little bit in recent years because I thought it was important in this moment in time to say something more but that never never more than than um, a certain quantity Um, it's very important for me to hear that something that was put out or published seven years ago 
could still say something, could be inspirational or could bring um, trigger questions or, 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 or bring on something. That's so important for me. Yes, absolutely. I have no interest whatsoever in making a magazine or anything per se that the moment it's out, it's like, boom, it's done. No, because then, then it's over. That's quick. That's fast food. I'm more for a good bottle of wine that needs, you know, <laughs> some time to get digested. Yeah. But you do a very good job at it. It's almost Thank annoying, you. to be honest, when you read oh. stuff and you're just like... Oh, oh boy. <laughs> I find it so funny. Well, like, you, oh. you're part of it. So, you know, I mean, your words are in the magazines. So. <laughs> a great honour, a great honour. I guess one of the places where our work really intersects is this passion for new talent and supporting emerging talent. And, you know, you've told me that one of your primary frustrations with the kind of emerging talent ecosystem is this fast consumption and the real challenge to build a more sustainable framework for photographers who are coming up through the industry and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your feelings about this, the pitfalls that you see, and, and I guess if you have any views of how we could move forward. It's complicated. Um, the way I see it is that 10 years ago, there were not that many maybe 15 years ago even, eh? 10 is too little, 15, let's say 15, there were not that many platforms focusing solely on um, emerging Mm -hmm. practitioners. So it was necessary to have space to open up a container, to open up opportunities, to have... um, to give people the chance to enter the conversations, to enter the industry. Now, this is how we would see it back then. Over all these years, many things have changed, thankfully, and I think for the large part, in, for the better. But one thing that also happened, and I don't think it's just collateral damage, it's it's embedded in, in the distortions of of the system and in the commodity system that we've created also with photography Mm. is that it's seen as fresh blood. There is an addiction to it. Every Mm. year you need to have the novelty. It's this fast consumption, um, quick satisfaction way of doing things that to me, my frustration comes from the fact that it became I, or I saw it turning from opening a door to a production chain, mm-hmm. bringing new things. And that was not the idea. And the idea was that you will open doors, you will create spaces with opportunities to grow and follow over the years which is something that we have tried to do with For Magazine a lot. There's so many fantastic uh, artists that um, were published, for example, in a talent issue 10 years ago, and then we kept working together over the years and following and, and 
witnessing their practice grow and then maybe having exhibitions. Just yesterday, I spoke with Mark Dorf and we realized, my God, we've been working together since 2015, constantly over the years. And last time we did it was past year. And like him, so many. But then within the broader industry, this is a business, you know, cults, competitions, whatever you want to have it. It's a big business. And while I understand how it works, we are part of it. It's for certain degrees is also necessary. What's missing? Because we, that's what we do with the magazine. Huh? We look at what's missing. Mm. What's missing is the nurture part of it, the mm-hmm. sustainable part of it, the, the, what happens after, how you build your practice, how you fund your practice, how you um, move along. How do you place yourself in something which is an industry? And I use this word so much because we have a big we have a big blind spot in ourselves, or at least I had it for so long, thinking, oh my God, we work in the arts. We don't talk about industry. We don't talk about money in that way. Mm. And that's a mistake mm-hmm. because it is important. It is necessary somewhere that money needs to come from. Because if you are a practitioner, you not only have to fund your practice, but you also have to leave. And it's not that you're going to get any fixed contract anytime soon. So what do you do? How do you fund it? Are you going to sell your artworks? Are you going to enter in the, in the gallery world? All of these are conversations that are important to have, I think, at early stages of a practice. So that someone has the time, the energy and the possibility to make informed choices. Mm-hmm. Or elaborate strategies that maybe go against that, but because you know how it works. So that that is my frustration part. And um, I'm very happy to say, for example, that an institution like Foam, which of course goes well beyond what I can do with the magazine, has taken actions in this sense. For example, now we we are rethinking our talent program and there is now a figure which is the curator of talent. And this person is a, a fantastic curator, Mirerva Berghout, that uh, will make everything more organic, will, will create sort of a new ecosystem and follow an ecosystem that goes in a more holistic direction, putting together the exhibitions and long-term programs but besides what foam does and what we will be able to do, which is a big experiment, and, and also de- we're going to have to see how that develops, um, I think that in larger in the industry, there should be a bit more focus in what happens the year after all these emerging artists are selected, two years after, three years after. So many people dis- just disappear after having one and a word waiting for the next word. And I feel that something is lost in between. I came into the industry primarily working with photographers who were fantastic, but they were about three to five years out of the emerging talent halo. So people knew who they were. They'd maybe won some awards. They'd had some projects talked about. They'd, they sort of cultivated a business around what they did, whether they were commercial or editorial or art photographers. But they were very much, I used to call it mid-career because it felt like you were emerging for 10 years and then you're, you were mid-career until you were like 60. And, yeah. and that, that whole mid-career period is, can be really difficult because 
yes, you have a good understanding of your practice, but there's just not much institutional support unless you're one of the few that kind of, you know, fought your way to get a really strong ecosystem around what you're doing. But for the majority of photographers, it is, it just feels like the the light's been turned off and, and they're really passionate, but the framework for support, whether that's financial or um, even just being in dialogue kind of just comes to an end and you're kind of left in your studio, just trying to like figure it out. And obviously part of that is, you know, part of being a creative person, but yeah, there just really isn't much community around that. Yeah. And there was a real hunger. Yeah, there was just a real hunger for support and, and energy and dialogue when I, when I started working with those people. So it's something I feel really personally about because I've really seen what it does and how it can, yeah, the sort of ramifications of just this, as you say, this obsession with the new and this this desire to for fresh blood. And it's it's interesting that you bring you bring up the commodity uh, aspect of the industry because it's infiltrated everywhere now. You know, often <laughs> when you're talking to editors or you're talking to brands even or or advertising people, it's not just in the art world, you know, they'll be like, well, we kind of want somebody new or we've kind of seen what they can do. And it's just like, they've been in the industry for six years. They're going to be around for a while. Like this this disposable attitude, which has come around with the commodification of the industry, which which is really difficult. And I think it really affects absolutely everything. It's almost the system that we've been we've built and now we have to live with but it just doesn't work for us yeah in any way it's the spinning i mean it's 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 thermodynamics in a way yeah it's the entropic functioning of things but it's that thing that brings you now in saying oh yeah well this body of work yeah it's interesting but it's from two years ago it's old what does that even mean it's two years ago as if for so many years we've been obsessing with bodies of work made 40 years ago <laughs> before because that was the canon of photography and nothing made in between could be any of any interest whatsoever and now the thing is oh well no you know that thing is two years old it's too old it's so much yesterday what what does that even mean and of course i know that this has to do with the fashion fashionable aspect of it we have seasons um mm-hmm in many things but what i what i feel it's important is that that strong wish that we tried to put in the magazine of making something that can grow with time and be mm-hmm. resonant in 10 years that is something that exists independently from us and i think that a, a body of work that is relevant also has some of that. So I'm interested in bodies of work made a certain number of time ago, of years ago, and look at them for what they mean now. What mm-hmm. can they tell us now? I I really want to rebel the idea of dealing with images that are valid today and tomorrow. They're not going to be relevant to the conversation anymore. I find this extremely disturbing. I do as well. And I think 
one of the elements that I find most disturbing about it is how that this culture is actually affecting young artists. And I, again, is something that comes out of so many conversations with young artists is they are almost masters of the PR system. They know how to market their work as if they're, you know, the head of brand for Nike. They really get it. They know the system. They know where they need to be seen, that they know what to do. But what they aren't doing enough of, um, and I mean this with love, is is cultivating their own practice and, and investing in their own work. And I'm speaking very generally, and I don't, I don't mean everybody, but I, it's just something I've started to observe with very young artists. There's just this pressure, obviously, you know, to succeed and, and be financially stable and sometimes even just like an obsession with gaining that sort of influencer status. And while, again, it, it's very complicated because I think the, you know, this whole influencer aspect of photography is both problematic and also radically revolutionary. You know, a big part of some of the artists over the last 10 years growing their own audience has been absolutely crucial in dismantling gatekeeping to some degree and enabling marginalized voices to be seen and heard and move in in important ways so I feel very conflicted being somebody who sort of grew up half with social media and half with the world before I think it's very powerful but then when I hear yeah when I hear just the obsession with a PR strategy over an obsession with your practicing your work and what you want to say it's a bit of a red flag for me so I I and I don't think that's necessarily the artist's fault I think it's the the system that they're being that's that's raised the in. context yeah that's that's also the context we've created or, yes. or we've we've contributed in in creating which triggered these these also obsession with being um, validated immediately mm. You need to be seen immediately. You need to be on top of everything immediately. And because you need to have all these skills and be a marketer of your body of work and be a fundraiser for your body of work, you need to do it all. And it makes me see and witness with a very great degree of sadness the amount of burnouts Mm -hmm. and exhaustion that you have in so many talented artists and practitioners that then the the teacher in me or the professor in me comes in and says, fuck, you should have the time and the space to just focus on your self, on your practice. But you're already, and I say already because mostly this happens with very young people, but sometimes it also happens with with late bloomers. eh? Mm -hmm. You are entangled in the system that's draining you and that means that your creative side your creative sparkle or the way you know you push your works that's going to be affected a lot Mm. and it doesn't you know and also know very well the conversation of yeah well you know look at the history of visual arts art has never been an easy job the struggle the da 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 it doesn't mean shit to me because now it's pure exploitment in many cases. 
And I do see how much this is systemic. This has to do with the system that has been created. It's not God-given or any divinity or whatever force given, um, which means that we have a responsibility in it. Or at least I feel that responsibility because I am part of that system, inevitably. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about your responsibility and how you think about that in the context of this landscape that we work in. How how do you kind of grapple with that and sort of, yeah, I don't know, navigate it? Uh, well, with, with a lot of conflict, um, I do feel I have a responsibility. I do not feel very effective at the same time. I am part of a system myself. I am part of a situation myself. Um, I work within an institution in a moment in which cultural institutions are facing um, a very big degree of an existential crisis because they were not able to embrace um, the changing nature that they should have or be loyal to the mission and the service and the function that they should have had. And um, I, in Sardinian, that's my native language, we have a, we have a saying that is kentu concas, kentu berritas. That means a hundred hats, a hundred heads, a hundred hats. There's so many different positions in it. There's so many different points of view and there's so many different forces that sometimes I feel the responsibility I have towards the platform I manage and, and, and the community I, I care for, um, very frustrating because I, I also feel tight. And sometimes I feel, oh, God, I should just break out from it and do things differently. But then the process becomes complicated. So what I do at the end of the day is to apply the degree of change that I'm able to apply, that I feel comfortable in applying also in the platform. And uh, most of it, I try to talk about it. I also try to use the magazine to talk about these problems, to talk about these topics, to, to invite people that have opinions or invite people that are active agents of different ways of doing things, of different approaches um, to our industry or to, 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 to the way we navigate and we create photography. But I also, again, have that frustration of understanding that it's, it's not as effective as I would like it to be. Or maybe I don't perceive how effective it really is. Mm. It's hard to know, isn't it? It's hard to measure. It's hard to know. You. It's. It almost goes back to our earlier conversation. Is like the what's vital is to keep showing up and doing it. That's that's really all we have, right? Is our is our contribution and the way that we kind of cultivate and support the community. I guess I, I'll, I'll take this this chance to talk a little bit about writing because these things now that we're talking about them I knew they were interconnected but they feel more connected than ever but I guess I'd love to hear a little bit about your writing process and and if you 
you know, have any rituals around that? Or is there any sort of, I don't know, way that or sort of set of circumstances that need to be in place for you to be in your writing zone? (laughs) I so um, I function like a pressure cooker. (laughs) You're one of those. I'm one of those. And um, I also am affected by a good degree of procrastination issues. But the reality, well, and and the fact that my life does not have time for writing. So I must write (laughs) when I can, (laughs) which is sometimes uh, very late at night and sometimes in between things. Or sometimes it has happened during extremely boring meetings (laughs) <laughs> on zoom that I would just do something else but um the thing is that I spend a lot 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 of time uh, in thinking about what I have to write in reading and researching there's a lot happening inside my head so that the moment I start writing, normally I start and finish in one shot. Wow. And then I edit. Mm-hmm. But not that much. It's, it's um, I'm not one of those that can write a piece and then evaluate and then go on. I get lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my, my mind doesn't, doesn't, I wish, I really wish I was able to, to function like that because it would have been way more effective and, and, and probably healthier, but it tends to go a bit more in, in, in one shot uh, after a long gestational uh, moment and, um, and then a revise later. It also depends on in which language I'm writing. Right. Because nowadays I can't properly write in any language anymore because it's it's become became too complicated. <laughs> um, and sometimes I write in yeah, a mix. This may sound like a silly question, but why is it important for you to write? You do so many different things. What is it that writing gives you that maybe the other things that you do don't? Um, hmm, that's a very good question. Um, why do I write? I guess that first of all, when I write, it's really just me. That's really just my point of view. And I know my point of view is, is, is in, in pretty much everything I do. But it's also a mediation of many different things most of the time. And when I'm writing, it's just me. It's it's that space without the friction. Or at least it only contains the friction that I have in With my you. head. Yeah. Exactly. But um, then that's, that's just me. And I love it also because it's more of a quiet space. One thing that I'm obsessed, for example, with the magazine is to to be multi-layered, to not give just one approach, to look at the very same thing from many different points of view, which also means that most, not most, well, but many times, some of those points of view, I don't like them. Mm -hmm. I don't agree with them. It's not my cup of tea. Mm -hmm. But as an editor, as someone that tries to 
you know, try not to make it about me. That's that's what I do with the magazine. I step out and I think, well, I think, well, that is important in order to make sense with the whole ecosystem. But when I'm writing, I don't need to do that. So I love it. <laughs> it's, it's my safe space. <laughs> yes. It's nice to have that sort of, yeah, the preciousness of that is quite important. I think especially yeah. with there's something a bit sacred about writing, which makes it sound like it's easy and it's certainly not, but there's something about that quiet, reflective time, which feels really special. A lot of people always ask me, like, why do you write? Because I used to be an art director. And I'm like, because I spent 15 years in rooms with everybody. And you're trying to, you know, rein all that in. And there's something very powerful about, and and a, and a reckoning, which I really like about being alone with your own thoughts and having to, and I like how I feel after I write. The moment I finish it, I feel so good. And 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 it's a bit of a rare but important thing, you know. So whenever I get the chance to a commission or something like, yay! I have to isolate, you know. I have to do it for work. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes we need those <laughs> boundaries put upon us, right? Yeah, they can be quite helpful. Um, in the run up to us talking, another thing that you were keen to discuss was this kind of urgent place of criticality in photography writing, which we both, I think, are in agreement that we very much lack. And it perhaps is doing a disservice, not just to the maker, but to the audience. And I wondered if you could share your thoughts on that and kind of, yeah, how you're feeling about it. You write about something if you have something good to say about that something. Which is awesome. Of course. But it cannot be the only thing out there. And it cannot be that a non-endorsement or a critical analysis of something is perceived as an attack as something that it's not convenient to publish or something that's not convenient to give space to or something that doesn't make enough clicks because people are not proud of it so it's not going to circulate as much so you you know you don't want to go there and it's something that I am striving to have in the magazine more and more I want to make space for it because I miss it not everything we see is good or not everything we see is only good. Some of the things that we see maybe are very interesting for certain aspects, but for other aspects, there's something more that could be said. And at the bottom of it all, pure endorsements are rare. There's so much writing that is made of press releases reworked. And that's boring as hell. And it's not doing any service to anybody. Not to the artist, as you said, as we were talking before, not to the community, not to the conversations. And I think it goes back to that idea of friction and, and conflict. Um, I'm skeptical of a context or a situation in which there is no degree of conflict whatsoever because it's impossible. It's a hundred heads, a hundred hats. 
Mm. If if there's too much agreement over something, there there must be something we're overlooking. Mm. But uh, it goes beyond the idea of agreement and disagreement. It's more of looking at what we do in a critical way, in a in a in a in a, in a, a bit more of a multi-layered way, in a deeper way, which I think it will be useful to take some pressure from another obsession that we have, which is value Mm -hmm. criticism is not about value something can be extremely valuable within its critique because you can you know can be functional and very useful and uh, enriching a conversation within critique critique is 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 good it's vital and there's not that much so yeah, I feel I feel we should make more space for that and be willing to engage with that. I think it's such a fascinating topic, especially in this moment in time, in that photography's relationship to the wider public has probably never been so I don't know, entangled. Like everybody has an opinion on photography now. Everybody takes pictures, everyone has an opinion on it. And actually, one of the most fascinating things is compared to how people often say they feel, you know, compared to how a lot of people say they often feel within an art gallery, people are not afraid to have have critique photographs. Like my dad's done it constantly. I'm just like, it's not, he's an engineer. He's not coming at it from any anything other than his like pure own personal response. But like everybody just feels like they can have an opinion about it. But we're not having that dialogue within our own industry. And I think, you know, we kind of sit between this very broad public. You know, everyone and their cat talking about photography, but then at the other end of the spectrum, we've got this highly academic. Critical approach which is which is vital but not accessible to all and then we kind of also sit in this commodification scenario that as we've been saying we've kind of cultivated ourselves but in a similar way to the way that exhibitions have are now sort of strategically framed and created to be marketed like movies right they need to be big hitters it's about it's like you said it's the clickbait it's the getting people in the door it's the instagram ability of something um it's the cultivating influence like that that is also happening around writing in photography and and like you just said there is just so much content and i will put my hand up to this like i've been commissioned to write stuff like this um where it's people just want a surface read of a book or an exhibition they just want you to jazz hands it rather than think critically and it feels it feels really dangerous because you're kind of putting a ceiling on something in terms of what a book could actually do if you're kind of if you know 20 publications are limiting it to just (laughs) the press release then then there's a ceiling there like it can't it can't go beyond that in that moment and also everything starts everything that's written around photography starts to have the grammar of a press release And I've been bumping up against that in really fascinating ways to the point where I've had a couple of instances in the last two years where creatives want to check the copy before it's published 
which I find really problematic. But at the same time, I can understand where they're coming from in a culture where they're scared of getting cancelled, they're scared of being misled. But I'm like, well, if if you're if you're literally doing this, this is this is just this is just a press release. But you know, it's also with the exhibition space, especially you were mentioning, it's the entertainment aspect of it. Because which goes back to what we were saying about visual literacy. Mm-hmm. You are expected to be a passive viewer, not an mm. active viewer. A passive viewer looks at the magazine, browses a magazine, looks at an exhibition, scrolls on Instagram, and the reaction is, I like it, I don't like it. Mm-hmm. It stops there. Yeah. An active viewing and engagement with the work assumes a certain level of critique. And then, of course, you can have the academic critique, you you can have the super non-accessible critique, but you can have the experiential critique, which is also what I miss. What, uh, what, What does that body of work make you feel? How do you relate to this? What does it communicate to you? What does it make you think? Which is a conversation I often have with the students, for example, when we do critique sessions, and then we talk about the body of work and they look at you with these big eyes and they're like, yeah, but you think it works or not? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, it's not about that. And I'm not mm-hmm. going to tell you if I like it or not, because that's what you want to know. It's really not the point. What is the experience of this work? What, what are you putting out there? Why on this earth do you want people to look at it? What are you expecting to happen? And so it goes to the root of it. And there was this gorgeous conversation we had with Mark Seeley, who's the director of um, AVP in London, and we had it for Limbo. And by the way, um, he's just published his new book, Mm. uh, which is an absolutely essential read. And he says that what he finds essential is a, a thorough process of unlearning also of what we think or expect or assume photography or images should be for, with the purpose of creating this space for a new paradigm that has at its core a sort of visceral, carnal, bodily almost, engagement, experience of what you have in front of your eyes so that that becomes, goes back to the center. And then you can create a paradigm around it. You can speculate intellectually about it. You can look at the history around it. You can do whatever you want. But then you put at the center something that's more direct, active. And this is the basis of, for the critique to exist, to critique, to, to, to have an opinion over it, which, yes, can endorse and cannot. Mm-hmm. I also had it with the magazine, with, with, with um, artists being upset with some texts that were written about their, their uh, bodies of work because maybe a writer had a critical approach to that body of work. And from our side, it was like, no, you know, that is most welcome. It should happen more often. Mm-hmm that that person actually engaged with your work and has something to say about it and not just repeating 
floating sentences saying that that is the future of photography. You know, it, mm-hmm. also that kind of thing that, no, 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 this is admissible. No, 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 this is great. Yeah, but why? What, 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 why? The why often stays unanswered. There is so much in what you just said that I'm going to try and control myself in my response. But things that, <laughs> things that brought up for me is the first thing is I'm very anti-portfolio reviews because I think this perpetuates the culture of somebody more se- senior um, or experienced telling you good or bad, yes or no, like or dislike. And it's absolutely useless. And when I mentor people, I literally, when they ask me about it, I say, this is not a portfolio review. This is like, if if you want to measure the work, then maybe we could talk about what your intentions are and I can tell you what my response was. But it, mm-hmm. I think, again, that, that notion of portfolio reviews is a is very much still rooted in trying to turn everything into a commodity and everything into this one-dimensional surface read, which I find really problematic. I'm super excited to read Mark's book. Uh, I've been really looking forward to it. And and it rem- the way you described what he said reminded me of the way Tina Camp talks about writing about photography. Yes. And I think a lot of the time when you say critique, people freak out and they think, as you said, it's an attack. But critique is an engagement. It's not yeah. necessarily... It's not about somebody coming for your lighting. And I think that's how people think. I think they, you know, they take it as like an assessment. And it's much more about that bodily embodied response, as you say. And Tina, Tina always says that she writes to the work. It's about her relationship to the work and and all of the things that encompass that moment, how she how she entered the space, what the weather was like, you know, all of the different things that frame, you know, the political situation of the moment, all the different things that framed where she was in that moment when she came into contact with the work. And I think we need to start having a bit of a, not only do we need more critique, but we need to sort of better understand what it is. Because I think, again, you know, (laughs) it's so circular, our conversation, but kind of what I was saying earlier about how we need a new language for things. I think that word is almost it's almost redundant because it doesn't quite articulate what that is and the benefits of it. Um, It feels a bit rooted in a power dynamic where perhaps one type of person was telling everybody what was good and what wasn't rather than, as you say, hundred people, a hundred hats. So it is really interesting. Critics, critique is good for us. Yeah. (laughs) It's good for you. You should have it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah it is it really is it's so important and and I feel like it as a writer as well I'm just always so desperate for feedback but and I remember when I first started writing like seven years ago I naively I think because of movies I thought oh you'll submit your piece and then your editor will come back to you and be like no 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 this 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 and I, I know when writers talk, uh, who write for the New Yorker they talk about having having that real back and forth relationship but there's a lot of publications that can't facilitate that because of time and all the pressures that they're under so it is really interesting just thinking about the culture around writing as well because that is a commodity and and the and writing is terribly underpaid especially 
if you, you know, Legacy Russell, I remember a talk I watched with Legacy Russell where she talked about this and she said, you know, how do we, something along the lines of like, how can we expect to have really powerful, important critique around the art work we're engaging with if you are asking somebody to compress that in 500 words and give it to you next Tuesday? Like, it doesn't necessarily work like that. It's so true and something I struggle so much with because we are also very often those bad guys and it's it's depressing and and it has to do of course with with the method and in how we build things but um you see it i mean you know a text can be rushed and sometimes can work very well and that's amazing but most of the time you do need time mm. to properly engage with that and to properly respond to that i have to say there's people that don't need time at all huh? there's writers that function in a completely different way but something that we should work towards to is definitely being able to accommodate that flexibility and that more of a profound approach to the commission as well mm. it is hard it is difficult i feel like it is important to acknowledge that the system within which writing happens because like we were saying earlier with the photography it does it can impact the final product and in some ways you know when a writer is having to write four pieces for four different magazines in a day to be able to pay their rent then it doesn't it doesn't always does sometimes but it doesn't always breed the most critical or engaged writing um and i don't think I try and talk about this a fair bit because I don't think that a lot of people know much around uh, photographers and artists. I don't think they know much about what happens on the other side with writing and how that functions. People are always quite surprised actually, when you talk about it, how it works. Are there any writers or academics that you turn to for the criticality that you're craving? Um, yeah, absolutely. There's uh, some of them which are uh, very much fundamental to me. The writing has been very important in, in shaping my view of criticism, but also keeping up with, with the conversation and how the conversations are being shaped. And um, it's names such as, of course, Mark Seeley. It's very important uh, voice for me. Uh, called Salamisha Tile, who's an American writer. She just won the Pulitzer Prize for the New York Times, and in the past she also wrote for the magazine. and And uh, she's a she's a very very important voice for me. There's other names, other contributors that write a bit less frequently. That maybe these academic names, people like Tamvi Mishra, uh, Eugenie Schinkel, yourself, Maria Mata, Stanley Voluka Wanambwa. He has just published. Um, two new readers with Aperture, and he often writes for us uh, recently together with Sunil. These are all names that are very important to me. I also appreciate uh, there are there, some of them that are uh, quite core, and I have to say I have different feelings toward their writings. I love them, but there's times that feels more resonant to me and times that works just differently. Then I think of, you know, David Campany or uh, Jörg Kohlberg himself. These are fantastic writers with whom I have had a long relationship and, and there's perhaps more of a yeah conversation going on. But yeah, I will say these are the the top names. How do you deal with self-doubt? I don't. 
<laughs> I'm a total victim of it. <laughs> Engage with it on a daily basis. Uh, how has success changed your work? I don't know. Am I successful? <laughs> I, I I doubt that. Um, I I don't receive feedback as much as I would. But no, I don't think has changed anything. No. What does your practice of curating, writing, editing, all the things that you do enable you to do in the world that perhaps if you'd taken another career path, you wouldn't be able to? Wow. Uh, um, It helps me being vocal. Has there been anything you've had to unlearn along the way? All of it. (laughs) It's it's the only true answer to that question for everyone, (laughs) right? Do you still think photographs have the power to shift thinking and consciousness? Ha. Huh. Um it's something I deeply want to believe in. Deeply a, need to believe in. Such a mysterious answer. I love it. <laughs> um What are you most hopeful for in the industry? You know, we've talked a lot about where you'd like to see things grow and evolve like what keeps you hopeful in terms of where we're standing today um that the kids are all right that keeps me really hopeful that whenever yeah I have the luck to be around younger generations that that, that the culture is there that there's something brewing always and then this question isn't a quick far question. You passed all of those with flying colours. Yay! Got it. <laughs> this, this is just the question I ask everybody at the end of the episode. And it's what matters more to you, the process of making your work or the final project or magazine or exhibition? The process, I will say. What, what, because the, the, the final product is just a consequence that I can be happy of or less happy about. But it's just a consequence. Thank you, honestly, from the bottom of my heart for making time to be on the show. It means so much. This is such a fantastic conversation. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening to The Messy Truth. You can find more information about today's guests in the show notes. Theme music is changed by Judd Greenstein from the album Awake and design is by Ruby White. You can follow updates on the podcast on my Instagram at Jem Fletcher or subscribe to my newsletter at gemfletcher.com. Feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts.